Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and today we are talking about recurrent pregnancy loss. This topic is near and dear to my heart. If you've been following me for a long time, you know that I had multiple miscarriages myself. So my living children, they're now six and eight years old, but they were my pregnancies number five and number six. So if you've been going through that stage of loss, I'm sending you a huge virtual hug because I have been there myself. In this episode, we're going to break down what it is to have recurrent pregnancy loss. We're going to talk through the evaluation, what tests should be ordered, what all could be causing it, and then different recommendations or options for treatment. So hopefully this episode will teach you that there's a lot out there and help you know more about your body or what your friends or family or loved ones may be going through. But first, Let's talk about this week's fertility in the news. This week, I want to talk about Lolo Jones. So she recently went viral and Yahoo News has picked up her story. as have many other outlets because she's been sharing her really vulnerable story. And I am just so proud, Lolo, and so inspired by what you're sharing. So she is an Olympian. She's competed in the summer and the winter games all around rock star. And she posted saying that it was 15 days before she turned 40 and nothing has scared her more than feeling like I'm running out of time to have a family. And I'm just going to read part of her post here. I originally wanted to freeze my eggs when I was in my early 30s. I just kept thinking I will meet my husband and things will all work out. Well, here I am 10 years later and it hasn't. All right, so this is what she's thinking about. She's almost 40 and she kept waiting. She kept thinking that she would go the traditional road that so many of us have been taught is the path of put your fertility a little bit on the back burner. And when you meet somebody, it'll all work out. And thankfully, she's realizing that it's time for her to be more proactive. So she put this really vulnerable and raw series of videos together. It's in a reel on her Instagram page at Lolo Jones. And what she's talking about is exactly what the process is. You're full of self-doubt. You're going in. You've been waiting for this to happen and it hasn't. Now you wonder, are you too late? Should you have done this 10 years earlier? But you can't rewind the clock. She got blood work checked and an ultrasound. She had a really good ovarian reserve for her age. So her AMH was 3.2. So to be essentially 40 to have an AMH of 3.2, that's wonderful. So remember that AMH is a marker of your ovarian reserve. So AMH comes from the cells that surround all of the follicles. And you might have heard this before. It's my favorite analogy. Imagine when you're born, all your eggs are kept inside a vault inside your ovary. Every month from the moment you're born, a group of eggs comes out of the vault. The eggs are either going to ovulate or die. When they start ovulating, that's when the brain turns on and that is puberty. But one usually ovulates, the rest of them die. And when the vault is empty, you're in menopause. So AMH is made from all the eggs outside the vault. And the interesting thing is when the vault is more full, more eggs come out every month. 
So a higher AMH reflects more eggs available outside the vault. And that is very important if you want to freeze your eggs because the eggs that are outside the vault are the eggs that are available to you if you are going to try to stimulate them in the IVF process. So AMH is directly correlated with how many eggs you can get if you're trying to freeze your eggs or do IVF. So hers at 3.2 is above average for her age, and that's wonderful. That must have felt like really the first glimmer of really good news for this process. So what you do when you freeze your eggs is you have to go through two weeks of hormone shots. So you're taking shots, namely the hormones that the brain normally makes, FSH and LH, to try to get all of those eggs to grow. Remember that they were going to die anyway, so you're not hurting your future fertility. You're just trying to encourage them all to grow even more. And you're monitoring them. You have to go to the clinic a lot every two or three days for ultrasound as you're watching them grow. Then you undergo the egg retrieval process. She has a hilarious video of herself under anesthesia. I laughed out loud. I'm so glad she's sharing the real moments behind this. And then you find out how many eggs you have frozen. And some people have to go through the process more than once, especially if you're older, to get enough eggs to make the math work out. Because the live birth rate per egg that you get is typically around 5%. So you need more than one if you're trying to have a child. So hopefully with her nice AMH, she got a really good result. And I'm thinking about her and sending her love. But I just want to say, sharing stories like this are so powerful. And I'm so glad she did it. I'm even more glad that Yahoo and other people have picked the story up because that's how we break down these barriers when it comes to fertility. That's how we encourage people to get their fertility tested at a younger age or encourage them to freeze their eggs at a younger age. Because what we know is that the success of egg freezing is related to how many eggs you have and your age at the time you do it. Your chromosomes inside your eggs have been sitting there from the moment you were born and they break down with time. So the older you are, more of your eggs are going to be genetically abnormal. And that's a really sobering fact as you approach 40. Lolo, I'm just so proud of you for sharing this. I'm so glad you did this for yourself instead of just waiting for the traditional path to come to you to take charge of your own fertility is a very empowering thing. And I know you are going to inspire so many other people. So thank you. And I love seeing fertility in the news. All right, well, let's dive on to talk about recurrent pregnancy loss. Ooh, okay, not my most favorite topic, but let's talk about it. So recurrent pregnancy loss is having miscarriages more than once. There was an old definition where you had to have three pregnancy losses before anybody would do an evaluation or a workup as to why you were having them. I always thought that was ridiculous as somebody who experienced this myself, but regardless, that's how the world was. Thankfully, things are different now, and the current recommendation is if you have lost two pregnancies, that now you should get an evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss. And I think that is really important. All right, so even though miscarriage itself is relatively common, about 15 to 25% of recognized pregnancies will end in a miscarriage. So that's about one out of four. What we do know is having recurrent pregnancy loss is not that common. So two or more failed clinical pregnancies, the incidence is less than 5%. Now, when we're officially diagnosing recurrent pregnancy loss, the medical term of a clinically recognized pregnancy is going to be a pregnancy seen on ultrasound. Doesn't mean it has to have a heartbeat, but it's one that's seen and known to be in the uterus. I will say that in clinical practice, many of us will use chemical pregnancies or getting a positive pregnancy test, but losing the pregnancy before you get to the doctor. 
as a loss as well. But just understand that the official studies are always going to use a pregnancy that's been proven to be in the uterus because otherwise, you know, was it an ectopic? Was it something completely different? And an ectopic pregnancy is a tubal pregnancy. What are the causes of recurrent pregnancy loss? The number one most common reason why pregnancies miscarry is going to be aneuploidy. Aneuploidy is an abnormal chromosome number. So as we talked about those eggs being inside the vault from the moment you're born, those chromosomes are just held in the perfect position in your egg the entire time until you ovulate. And they're held in the right spot by proteins. And proteins break down over time. We all know this because we get wrinkles, you know, our back aches. As we get older, our body's not exactly quite the same as it was when we were younger. And that is true inside of our eggs also. So random aneuploidy is just a random chromosome abnormality. These are more common as we get older, and they're from maternal chromosome abnormality inside the eggs. And when you examine miscarriage tissue, like from people who have tissue and you're able to examine it, about 60% of early losses are just associated with random sporadic chromosome abnormality. So these are often age-related, so increase in odds as we get older. So just for example, the risk of having a miscarriage between 6 to 12 weeks, so a clinical miscarriage in the first trimester, if you're under 35, it's going to be around 10 to 12%. So not that high. But as you get older, the chance increases significantly. And when you're older than 40, the rate's almost 50%. So those are huge numbers. And so 35 tends to be the time period where that risk starts to increase significantly because we have just about as many abnormal eggs as we have normal eggs. So one of the top causes, random chromosome abnormality. Now, can you do anything about this? I mean, you can't go back and rewind the clock, so we can't do that. Can we try to help support our eggs the best possible? There's some thought that certain lifestyle behaviors may be more associated with miscarriage than others, and we don't know if this is due to genetic abnormalities or this is just environment. But a few things that fall into this category are certainly going to be, you definitely want to, you know, eat a good diet, healthy diet full of fruits and vegetables. You want to avoid having too much caffeine. So you want to have, you know, less than 200 milligrams a day. So about one cup of coffee a day. You want to avoid smoking cigarettes and marijuana. And you want your spouse to avoid those or your partner as well. Because even having your partner contribute has been associated with an increase in pregnancy loss. Other things, um, consuming alcohol, so more than three drinks per week has been associated with miscarriage as cocaine and other substances that are toxic to the pregnancy have been associated with miscarriage. So you want to make sure that you're looking at those lifestyle factors and doing what you can. There's some concern that some environmental toxins or inflammation may also have an increased prevalence with miscarriage. These things are much harder to study. But it is worth saying that looking at your world around you and trying to limit your toxin exposure is going to be really important because some of these toxins have been associated with poor egg quality. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. 
In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No one shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Now on another stand of genetics. Okay, so that's random abnormalities, most common. The other side of genetics is there's something called a balanced translocation. And both partners should undergo a karyotype to look for a balanced translocation. You will find these in about 2 to 5% of people who have recurrent miscarriage. The easiest way to describe this is as we talked about those chromosomes being held in the perfect spot. Somebody who has a balanced translocation, they have all the right chromosomes. They have the right number of chromosomes, but two of them have switched spots. Inside your personal body, it doesn't matter because where your chromosomes are don't matter. They just need to have genes and that encode proteins to do the various functions that your body needs. However, when those eggs go to split, which is what happens when you ovulate, 
That's how you go from a chromosome content of 46XX to 23X, half of your genetics in the egg. That is when if your chromosomes are in the wrong spot, they're going to split abnormally a very high percentage of the time. So this can happen both from sperm or from eggs. So if you find a balanced translocation, there's no lifestyle or other thing you can do to make it go away. But what you can do is you can do IVF to test and try to find the balanced or the normal embryos. And that is then going to decrease your miscarriage rate substantially because you're not going through the loss that you would go through otherwise by having the translocation. All right, so number one, there's genetic causes of loss. Number two, there are clotting disorders of loss. One of the most common one is something called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. The reported range of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, or you'll see it APS, is about 5 to 20% of patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. Now, this is an interesting diagnosis. The way that I like to think about this is that your body is totally fine when you're not pregnant. However, when you become pregnant, this is an autoimmune reaction that causes your blood to clot more, and these clots can block the blood vessel connection from mom to baby in the placenta. So what you do here is you test three very specific blood tests. They're very strangely named lupus anticoagulant, aneocardiolipin antibody, and beta-2 glycoprotein. And you're looking to see if these are positive. And what you're really looking for to get the diagnosis is to have it be positive on two separate occasions with 12 weeks apart. And then you also want to have a clinical criteria, which probably if you fall in this category, you're going to meet. It's either history of a blood clot in the past or having an unexplained loss after 10 weeks, having a premature birth before 34 weeks because of preeclampsia or growth restriction, or having three or more losses before 10 weeks. So these are the official things that should warrant you testing. Although everybody now is doing the blood testing if you've had two losses, that would be pretty standard because there's something we can do about it. So if you test positive for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, you will be put on Lovenox and on baby aspirin for the duration of your pregnancy. And we start these on the day of embryo transfer if you're undergoing IVF. And if you're not, you will be on baby aspirin. And then when you get a positive pregnancy test, you would start the injectable blood thinner. So that can help reduce the risk of both preeclampsia, but also of that pregnancy loss. Now, there's some other clotting disorders that are sometimes warranted. These are called inherited thrombophilias. Now, I know that's a big word, but essentially, these are family-based clotting disorders that get passed down in your family. So truly, most people don't test these if you've just had pregnancy loss, unless you have a personal history of a blood clot. So you had a blood clot in your legs or in your lungs at some other time or a first-degree relative who did, so your mom, your dad, your sister. So make sure you share that history. If you say, well, I have had two miscarriages, but my mom you know, developed a pulmonary embolism that one time, that would be more evidence to want to test these. The most common would be factor V Leiden, but there's a few others called prothrombin gene mutations, protein C, protein S, and antithrombin deficiencies. So there's an entire little blood panel. Very similarly, the treatment is going to be an injectable blood thinner if you're found to have one of these. So routine testing of these is not recommended just for recurrent pregnancy loss without a history-based component of you or a first-degree family member having this as well. So, so far we've covered genetic factors, 
And then we have clotting disorders. Next, we're going to talk about endocrine or hormonal factors. So when we think about this, there are some endocrine diseases, namely diabetes and thyroid disease that are known to cause miscarriage. So thyroid is going to be one of the most common ones. The screening test is typically a TSH or a thyroid stimulating hormone. Thyroid stimulating hormone is made from the brain from the pituitary gland and it stimulates the thyroid, which is a butterfly shaped gland in the neck, to make thyroid hormone, which circulates in your body as T3 and T4. When your brain senses that your thyroid hormone is low, it's going to want to have more. So it's going to send out an increase in TSH to try to get the thyroid gland to work harder. TSH values above 2.5 have been associated with an increase in miscarriage. Now, this is interesting because the normal range of a TSH is about 0.5 to 4. So if you just get your blood tested for thyroid and it comes back at 3.5, somebody may tell you by looking at the lab ranges that that's perfectly normal. And it is for Natalie walking around the street. But Natalie who's trying to get pregnant, Natalie who is pregnant, needs a TSH of less than 2.5 and should be treated with thyroid hormone. Similarly, that is a little mixed on if you have thyroid antibodies like thyroid peroxidase or thyroid globulin antibodies. However, if you are getting them tested or you have autoimmune thyroid disease in your family, you should get those tested as well. And if you've had miscarriage, there's some thought that potentially treating those thyroid antibodies, even if your TSH is normal, may help. Again, confounded in literature, so you'll see people do it both ways. Very often, I feel like a lotus synthroid has very few side effects for this limited time period of conception and early pregnancy and has potential benefit. So I err on the side of treating, but somebody's not wrong. They're still medically sound if they don't, if your TSH is less than 2.5. If we think about diabetes, diabetes has for a long time clearly been associated with miscarriage, specifically uncontrolled diabetes. So well-controlled diabetes, having a normal sugar is not. When it's uncontrolled, you do have a high chance of pregnancy loss. And what you'll see is many of us who do fertility, we actually won't initiate fertility treatments if your hemoglobin A1C is elevated because we know your chance of loss is too high. So we're going to work to get that down before we feel comfortable doing a cycle that could result in a pregnancy. Another thing to think about could be prolactin. So prolactin is another hormone that comes from the pituitary gland. We do know that prolactin alters how the brain sends out hormones, and it has been associated with what we call a short luteal phase or a luteal phase defect at mild elevations. As it gets more severely elevated, you can then have irregular periods, and even at its most highest value, you could have amenorrhea or no periods altogether. However, when people who had recurrent pregnancy loss were found to have a high prolactin and they were treated with medication to drop it, they had a significantly higher live birth rate. So I think this tells us normalizing that prolactin before you get pregnant is really important. And I find that this luteal phase problem could be associated with extremely early pregnancy loss. Now, luteal phase deficiency has come under mixed reviews. Is it that you have a corpus luteum that doesn't make enough progesterone and that progesterone causes you to lose the pregnancy? Or is there low progesterone because the pregnancy is not normal, so it's not stimulating production from the corpus luteum in the same way? And that's the way that the pregnancy and the body communicate because humans can't carry that many babies to term normally. 
We don't really have all the answers here. I tend to think of luteal phase defect as on the spectrum of ovulatory dysfunction, meaning if you're not ovulating from a follicle at its full potential, does that follicle have the ability to reheal and make progesterone when it becomes the corpus luteum? Because that's its job after ovulation. And that corpus luteum has to make enough progesterone to support a pregnancy through the early stages of implantation. Then when the pregnancy implants and starts making HCG, that will cause continued support of the corpus luteum. But if your corpus luteum doesn't have the right structure to make progesterone, could that contribute to loss? It's been mixed on what the treatment is here. I was trained in the world of if we think the problem is the follicle that you're ovulating from, perhaps ovulation induction with medications like Clomid or Letrozole may help you ovulate a better follicle. Therefore, it has more ability to make progesterone. And I'm a believer in that. There's also been mixed studies on progesterone in general. So the one that we ran with for a long time was showing that progesterone upon a positive pregnancy test did not have any change in miscarriage rate. So for a long time, many people have been saying, well, progesterone doesn't help. However, there was a study that came out more recently. It was in 2017 that showed that when somebody who's had two or more early pregnancy losses before 10 weeks, if you start progesterone three days after ovulation, then there was a significant improvement in live birth rate. And so I think that if your workup is normal and you're left with nothing or you're left with maybe just a short luteal phase or possibly short cycles together, luteal progesterone, so not progesterone on positive pregnancy tests, but luteal progesterone is a good option or something you could try. And I often like to combine this with Clomid personally because you're kind of making a better follicle and then also supporting it with progesterone. That is not wrong to just support with progesterone afterward. But if somebody says, oh, well, progesterone doesn't work, here's a point. Well, I know it doesn't work after a positive pregnancy test, but what about that study that showed that it does help after ovulation? Could we try it? And if your doctor says no, you might want to seek another opinion, but that's a nice way to frame it because progesterone is cheap, it's easy, and it really doesn't have any side effects. So to me, that's a low-risk intervention. All right, back to what we need to do for the workup. So, so far, we've looked for clotting disorders, the treatment of which is going to be blood thinners. We've looked at causes of short luteal phase, could treat with ovulation induction or luteal progesterone. We've looked at other endocrine diseases. So you need to treat a hyperlactin, treat abnormal thyroid, treat your diabetes. We've looked at genetic abnormalities. If you have a balanced translocation, then that's criteria for IVF with genetic evaluation of the embryos. And then there is an anatomic evaluation. So I often see this one left out and that's very curious to me. We know that if you have a congenital abnormality of your uterus, so a uterine birth defect, did you know you could have birth defects of your uterus? A uterine birth defect can cause miscarriage. So the most common one is called a uterine septum. A uterine septum is failure of reabsorption of the midline piece of the uterus. So listen to this. The uterus is formed in two little buds. These little buds elongate and they then fuse together and they become the top one third of the vagina, the cervix, the uterus, and the fallopian tubes. And so after they join together, this midline portion has to totally reabsorb. And if it doesn't reabsorb, then you're left with an avascular piece of tissue and that's called a uterine septum. So uterine septums have a very high rate of miscarriage. 
You can correct this by doing hysteroscopic septum resection. So that's a day surgery where you put a camera in from the vagina through the cervix into the uterus and you take out that uterine septum. You do have to let the uterus heal afterward and you know, each doctor has their own specific protocol, but for me, it's about a month of hormones to recover. And I like to put a little balloon in the uterus for about a week to make sure there's no scar tissue that forms. But that is something that we can do something about. There's controversy on some of the other things of the uterus. So what about intrauterine scar tissue, fibroids that are in the middle of the uterus or uterine polyps? Most of us will believe that those should all come out if they're inside the uterus. Fibroids that are not inside the uterus, but in the muscle, that's called an intramural fibroid, a fibroid in the muscle. Those are less likely to be associated with miscarriage. However, depending on where it is and the size and your history, it's potentially an option for surgical removal. But that is a much bigger surgery than just a hysteroscopy. And the recovery is much more difficult. You have to wait at least six months to try to get pregnant because we need that uterus to heal. And we risk things. We risk developing scar in the uterus or having heavy bleeding. So taking out really big fibroids is something that we want to make sure we feel like is going to be worthwhile. But in order to evaluate the uterus, you're going to need some type of imaging. The best for the uterus is typically a saline sonogram or an SIS. This is where you put a speculum in the vagina and a small catheter to the cervix, inject a little bit of saline or water into the uterus while you watch with vaginal ultrasound, and this separates those walls of the uterus so you're able to see polyps or scar tissue or uterine septum really well. Another option if saline sonogram is not available is to do an HSG or a hysterosalpingogram. It is similar. It's called the dye test where you put dye in the uterus and you watch with x-ray and that dye is supposed to outline the uterine cavity. So it's either perfectly normal or there's some filling defect, some area where the dye doesn't go. And then that would warrant further evaluation. There are no true uterine infections that have been associated with recurrent miscarriage and there have been studies looking at it. That said, some people will empirically treat you for something called chronic endometritis. Not endometriosis, this is a very different thing, but endometritis is essentially like an inflammation inside the uterus. And so the treatment tends to be an antibiotic like doxycycline for a couple of weeks. You can, you know, pre-treat and post-treat or test with endometrial biopsies, but that tends to be painful, and many of us just empirically give a couple weeks of antibiotics. But nobody's wrong if they want to do biopsies before or after. All right, so this is the classic evaluation of recurrent pregnancy loss. So if you come in with two or more losses, it's pretty standard to get tested for clotting disorders, endocrine diseases, to be talked to about your you know, cycle history and your luteal phase, to have an anatomical evaluation and to have karyotypes drawn of you and your partner to look for translocations. That's the standard. What is there that you can do with this information and then what extra testing exists that's controversial? So if these things come back point isolated, oh, you have a uterine septum, well, then that gives us, okay, well, we could go correct that and make us feel more confident that when we attempt pregnancy again, that's not going to happen. Let's pretend we live in the world where everything comes back normal. What are you going to do? Your lesser aggressive treatment is going to be trying just luteal progesterone or cycle optimization to see if potentially that could help or doing IVF with genetic testing to see if you can identify normal embryos because we're left with the default if everything's normal that potentially what's going on is you have an increase in aneuploidy or an increase in abnormal chromosome count for your age. So more than you should have abnormal for your age 
And if we can go and identify the normal ones, maybe we can overcome this. I'll say, you know, my choice will just depend on patient preference, age, or family planning goals. So if you're young or you don't want as many kids or your cycles do appear to have some luteal issues, that's a super reasonable first try. If your cycles are really perfect, if you're older, you're getting started in your family a little later, or your ovarian reserve is lower, sometimes we want to be a little more aggressive and push to IVF because we want you to have this opportunity to have a family. Couple of things that are over on this side. ERA testing, endometrial receptivity analysis testing. This is biopsy sampling of the uterus to mimic what happens in an embryo transfer cycle to see if in theory you need more or less progesterone. This has specifically been studied for recurrent implantation failure, which has varied meaning in all studies, but let's think of it as implantation failure of embryos and IVF. Study looking at doing ERA before the first transfer has not been shown to be beneficial, increases cost, it's more invasive, and takes time. However, might be beneficial after people have lost pregnancies. There's no right or wrong here. This test is new and data is limited. People will swear by it, of course, because it worked for them. Other people will go through everything and this will not help at all. So I think there's differing approaches. In general, I consider you to have recurrent implantation failure if you've had two normal embryos that have not implanted. And that's where I typically recommend this test. Do we consider it at earlier stages? Absolutely. What if you don't have two embryos? We know if you come back with six embryos, that's a little different. What if you only make one and that's all you have? So depending on your history, if you lost pregnancies in the past, how many embryos you have, how hard it was to find that embryo, we would talk pros and cons of this test. Another debatable thing that's not been supported in studies is DNA fragmentation of the sperm. The thought here is that if the DNA inside the sperm is fragmented or poor quality, is that more prone to giving you embryos that have poor quality? Well, because the treatment of this has traditionally been to do IVF with ICSI, it hasn't really made much sense to do this DNA testing. However, newer studies are showing that testicular extracted sperm, so not ejaculated into a cup, but going into the testes with a needle may have less fragmentation than that what you ejaculate. There's some emerging thought that if you have concern for this, that getting a testicular sperm sample and combining it with an IVF cycle may give you a better outcome. I don't usually do this for loss, although it wouldn't be wrong, but no study has supported that. But sometimes I consider this in poor embryo development, especially after day three, when we consider that male genome kicking in. And then other things that have not been proven in studies are going to fall into the category of immunology stuff. So natural killer cells, using IVIG, checking certain immunologies. This stuff for the most part when evaluated has looked like it just increases cost significantly to the patient without any proven benefit. However, like everything in life and in medicine, there's always exceptions. So if you have an immunologic disorder, if you have autoimmune disease, you might fall into a different category. And I think that's worth discussing. If you're known to have an altered immune system from the beginning, if potentially that could be contributing. And I also think I encourage patients, not that you cause your miscarriage. I never believe that that's the case. But I do think it's worth optimizing your future attempts and doing everything you can to not fall into that category again. So really looking at ways to decrease your inflammation, to limit your toxin exposure, to get sleep and try to reduce your stress and do what you can to try to have the best quality eggs and sperm available 
for that next pregnancy. And it's never going to hurt to take some vitamins and supplements, you know, a prenatal vitamin, uh, fish oils, vitamin D, CoQ10, and some antioxidants. Those are things that can be really good for your cells and for healing. And so I usually put patients who have pregnancy loss on some of those. Now, that was a really meaty, in-depth episode. If you're going through pregnancy loss again, my heart is going out for you. I hope you don't feel dismissed by a provider. If you do, try to find somebody else. This is so personal. You really need somebody who can balance giving you honest answers because some of the stuff is not fun to hear, but who's also going to do a comprehensive evaluation and make sure we know all the pieces of the puzzle. So I guess the last thing I will say is I always like to add in complete preconception testing. So making sure, you know, you're immune to your vaccines, that you've had preconception carrier screening, and that we do a semen analysis as well, just so that we don't have any surprise other issues along the way. And we can really make the game plan to get you pregnant fastest in the best way possible. All right, well, let's answer a few questions for FFS for fertility sake. This is our weekly Q&A where I answer your questions. So these are questions that you ask on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. I put a question box up every Monday. So feel free to go and ask your questions. Some of the questions I will answer there and then more of them we answer here every week. All right, let's dive in. So after a chemical pregnancy, do you have to take a month off of fertility treatments to resume? The answer here is no. So I just make my patients have a negative HCG. So by definition, a biochemical pregnancy is one where you get a positive pregnancy test. But before you get to the stage of seeing a pregnancy on ultrasound, you start to bleed and you miscarry. So we just want that HCG level to be all the way zero. And then we would go ahead and proceed with whatever our next step is. Next question, when is it time to switch clinics? This is a good question. And I'm going to say if you're asking the question, it might be time to look elsewhere. So in general, you need to feel like your questions are getting answered. I think that's the number one thing. If you have a doctor who just treats you like one of many, if it feels like a cattle call, if you feel like none of your protocols are personalized or nobody can tell you why you're doing something or take the time to answer your questions, I find that to be a huge red flag. I think it's always appropriate to want to know what is going on with your treatment. And sometimes it's not the doctor. Sometimes the doctor is great or you really jive with the doctor, but it's something else about the clinic. And, and that's okay too. You need to feel like it is the right place for you. And if it's not, you should consider getting another opinion, even if it's not the most convenient clinic. All right, next is how do you tell if the fallopian tubes are damaged? Well, the best way to tell about the fallopian tubes is an imaging test. It's that HSG or that x-ray dye test. When we do this, the dye moves not just through the uterus, but into the fallopian tubes. And you can see tubal blockage and you can also see dilation or something called hydrosalpinks. This can come for a variety of different reasons. It can happen from abdominal surgery. It can happen after a delivery. It can happen from endometriosis. But one of the most common is a prior chlamydia infection. So if you're listening to this, you always want to protect yourself against sexually transmitted diseases, specifically, you know, if you're not in a long-term committed relationship where both parties have been testing. Why is birth control prescribed short-term before an FET cycle and is it definitely necessary? Very often we put you on birth control to try to expedite the process because we can evaluate the uterus better in a cycle and make sure everything looks good right before we start the process. It also can allow some synchronization because we've suppressed you so your brain doesn't send out any FSH. 
So we know we're starting treatment at a really nice baseline. However, I have patients who hate birth control or can't take it because they have history of blood clots or some other medical indication to not be on birth control. And you can certainly do a transfer cycle without birth control. It just means you probably have to have a full month of an evaluation and then wait before you can start the transfer cycle. So most of us actually do it to keep the train moving because we know that you are ready to be pregnant and we want to get you pregnant as fast as possible. All right, next is ways to thicken the endometrium aside from estrogen for frozen embryo transfers. So a few things to think about is when you're doing a frozen embryo transfer, you'd usually take estrogen if you're in a controlled cycle. Estrogen thickens the lining, although the pills that you take are different than exactly what the body makes. I think, number one, if you don't have a lovely thick lining, I love to add on vaginal estrogen because vaginal estrogen just works differently. It is more local and many people, it just absorbs beautifully. The vagina is so absorptive. Um, other ways are to try a different protocol type. So very often a natural or a modified natural where you stimulate the ovaries to make natural estrogen. That's my favorite. If you have history of a thin lining, I'm not messing around most of the time with injectable estrogen or this vaginal estrogen. If your lining has a history of being thin, I usually want to go right to the source. So I want to make your ovaries work for it and make their estrogen because that's what the uterus loves the most. So that's considered a modified or a natural cycle. Other natural ways can be antioxidants. So vitamin C and E, melatonin at night, even if you sleep well, has been shown to have higher progesterone levels in the luteal phase and possibly a thicker uterine lining. And you'll hear a lot of buzz in the fertility community about pomegranate juice, and that's because it's a really high source of vitamin C. And vitamin C and E are some really good antioxidants. All right, and last question, how do hot tubs impact sperm? This is a great one. So the testes are outside the body to keep the sperm production at a lower temperature. Sperm production needs to be at a lower temperature than the rest of your body. So just living in the crazy inferno that is Texas or wearing boxers or briefs, that doesn't matter. But when you submerge the testes in body of water, like a hot tub, or you sit in a sauna frequently, that testicular temperature is going to raise higher than what it should be. And that heat is really toxic to the development of sperm. So it causes a lot of reactive oxidate species or what we call ROS, essentially a lot of inflammation and that impairs sperm development. And the sperm actually develops more abnormally shaped or has an abnormal morphology when it's exposed to heat. So no laptop and lap, no hot tub saunas, limiting motorcycle riding if somebody does it a lot and they feel like their testes gets really hot. And then there's some jobs where it's more likely that the testes are going to get hot fighter pilots and truck drivers are some of the big ones. And you can't quit your job always. That's your job. But I do recommend maybe getting a semen analysis earlier in your time trying to conceive to identify problems sooner. I hope you guys like this week's FFS for fertility's sake. Again, you can always ask on Mondays at Natalie Crawford MD. I appreciate you guys so much. Want to give a final plug for the natural fertility course. So I have a course called Enhance Your Natural Fertility. So if you're curious about the lifestyle factors that you can do and you want to take a deep dive into what all the science shows us about your body, how it works, and what impacts your fertility, you are going to love this program. So you can go to nataliecrawfordmd.com to learn more. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. 
It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join the collective.